Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Have you ever been reunited with a loved one? I think we've all experienced that in some way or another, being on a trip or a vacation or a work trip or just away for a while or they were away for a while and they came home. Think about that reunification with that loved one. The first one that comes to my mind was after uh, Jessica and I went to Europe for a little bit of a, a tour through Germany and France. And as soon as we got back home, we were living in Florida then, as soon as we got back home, there was a hurricane coming through, Hurricane Irma. Like two days later, it was coming. So we had this big old plan made where we would land, we would meet her parents, I think, at a Cracker Barrel parking lot, right? Something like that. And uh, D- Jessica got out of the car. Anna had been with the grandparents all week long in Florida. I hadn't seen her since we were in Europe. And so we got out of the car. Jessica got in their car with Anna, and they went to Tennessee. And I went back to <laughs> Avon Park, Florida, there in the center of Florida as the hurricane came through. Um, and a week later, uh, Jessica and Anna flew back. I picked them up, and that was one of the sweetest reunions that I can I can remember having was uh, seeing Anna after like two and a half weeks as much as I thought that would be a good break uh, it was unbearable and then Jessica was there after a week of not seeing her too think about a time when you've been reunited with a loved one those feelings those thoughts and two questions maybe one is obvious maybe one might be a little odd what was good about that reunification what was good about that reunion with that loved one Of course, seeing someone you love, being able to hug them and touch them and kiss them and go home and be the same as it it has been. What about that second question? What was disappointing about it? Perhaps it was a, uh, a reunion where you knew that it wouldn't last long. Maybe you weren't coming home. Maybe they weren't coming home. Maybe it was just family coming to visit or children or grandchildren coming to visit. And so while you were overjoyed in that moment of seeing them and all the joy that brings, there was also this in the back of your mind that this isn't going to last. They're going to have to go back home or I'm going to have to go back home. Think about that disappointment that is sometimes there as well. So think about all that disappointment that sometimes comes with reunions as joyful as they are. And then think about never having to feel that again. That disappointment of knowing that this reunion won't last forever. Think about that disappointment never happening again. And then think about all the good, all the joy and the happiness in those reunions. And think of that never ending. And then if you can take that joy and that happiness and that fulfillment and that reunion and sort of bottle it up in a place or maybe in a person, that is heaven. And that is the presence of God and the presence of Christ and the presence of our lost, our our dead loved ones, not our lost loved ones, forever and forever. 
Think about all that is good in those reunions to their fullest degree, never having to end. And I think that brings up maybe in our minds a problem in our thinking about heaven. And that is we don't see the resurrection as going far enough. We don't see the resurrection as reaching far enough. Because even as we think about heaven, and we talked about this maybe the first week, even as we think about heaven, or perhaps you're going as far as to think about the resurrection or the new heaven or the new earth, even as we think about that, there's something in the back of our mind that says it can't be that good forever. There's going to be that initial moment of joy, the initial moment of happiness or whatever it is, and then that's going to fade away because we don't think about the resurrection reaching far enough. We're not thinking rightly about heaven. We're not thinking rightly about eternity. So let's ask that question. How far reaching is the resurrection? Let me ask you a question I've asked you already and see if you can kind of conjure up what we've talked about so far. The question is, what is our ultimate hope as believers? That question is there in your handouts and your study guide. What is our ultimate hope as believers? What is your ultimate hope? And of course, I think all of us would say heaven, eternal life, seeing Jesus. Think about that ultimate hope. Think about what comes to your mind when you think about this is my hope as a believer. And then let's think about this together. On, in the book, if you have the heaven book, uh, look at that quote on page 132. I'm sorry, 133. At the very beginning of chapter 13, how far reaching is the resurrection? About two paragraphs down, we were created. Listen to what the author says here. We were created from the earth to live on the earth. Our hope isn't that we'll be delivered from our bodies, but into our new bodies and into the new world where we'll live with Jesus. Now, I wonder how many of us think about heaven in those terms. Like we talked about the first week, maybe we, we tend to think of heaven as just our soul leaving our body, and that's kind of the end. We're, we're forever with the Lord in our soul, but our body's in the ground, and that's okay because we didn't need it anyway, and that's not really who we were. And all these things we hear sometimes with good intentions by people trying to make us feel better about death or about passing away or that of a loved one. But when we look at the Bible, there's a much fuller picture. As the author says, this is not deliverance from our bodies, but the resurrection will be a deliverance and a salvation and a redemption into new bodies into a resurrected, glorified body. So hopefully part of this study is encouraging us that as we think about heaven, as we think about the resurrection and our ultimate hope, it's not just a spiritual existence in the clouds somewhere, but it is a real life in a real glorified body on a real redeemed earth. That is the future heaven. On page 135 of the book, just two, book, uh, two uh, pages to the right there, um, I'm just going to start reading at that paragraph under the heading, Using Our Imagination About the Resurrection. I'm going to start reading there where it says biblically, and I'm, I'm going to read these two paragraphs. See if you think about the resurrection like this. Biblically, the resurrection of the dead extends much further than most of us have been taught. How much further might the power of the resurrection go? Let's use our biblically informed imaginations. Could a child's story written out of a love for Jesus survive this world? 
either in heaven's handwriting or the child's own. Might, I, and this, I never thought about this till reading this this week, might certain works of art, literature, and music survive either literally on the canvas and paper they were written on, or at least to be recreated in heaven? Obviously, we can't be certain, but isn't the idea consistent with what we've seen of the nature of resurrection? Remember last week, we talked from Romans 8 about the resurrection, not just of our bodies, but the resurrection and the redemption of all creation. Remember, all creation is groaning and longing for the day of resurrection. What if that extends to the arts and to nature and to all the beauty that we see around us? Second paragraph there, if our bodies and the works of our hands that please God will be resurrected, why not a chair, a cabinet, a wardrobe made by Jesus in his carpenter shop in Nazareth? Couldn't God reassemble those molecules as easy as our own? Are they not much, as much part of God's very good creation as our bodies and animals, lakes, trees? What about things we made to God's glory? Could these be resurrected or even reassembled? Now, the author was clear in the first session that we're not being invited here just to make stuff up. We're using biblically informed imaginations looking at how God promises to redeem not just our bodies, but all of creation. And I think the author is just asking us to think about what if that redemption and resurrection of all creation includes these things that mankind has made, works of art and music and literature, a child's story that was written on a piece of paper, things that brought glory to Jesus, things that brought truth and beauty and goodness into the world that will be there in eternity as a testament to to God's glory and God's beauty. The author and the study guide ask a good question, I think, or they raise a good question. If you really think about it, there is really only one unearthly eternal destination spoken of in scripture when we think of death and we think of heaven we tend to think of what words like otherworldly don't we unearthly spiritual heaven we kind of think that it's somehow so very different so separated from this existence and this world but the bible presents heaven as we've seen as a new earth a redeemed earth the only non-earthly spiritual place we see after death in scripture is hell hell is not on a redeemed earth hell is not part of the new creation by its very definition hell is not earthly whereas heaven will eternally be earthly in a redeemed sense Here's some ways this comes across, I think, when we have funerals and people, people comfort each other. Or maybe when we're grieving, you might hear someone say in their grief, um, maybe about a, past, um, a husband or a brother or a son that has passed away. You might hear someone say, she'll never hug her husband again. And there's sorrow in that. Or maybe you'll say, this is the last time I'll see my son in his body there at the funeral when the casket is closed. Or we'll say, maybe this is the last time we'll see them on this earth. And we've all heard those things. We might have said those things. But those are not biblical things. What we should say, she will never hug her husband again in this life. 
I will never see my son or daughter or whoever has passed again on this earth, this current earth. But in the new earth and the new heaven, you will really be you. Have you thought about that before? You will really be you, and they will really be the person you remembered. We will know even as we are known. Now, Jesus, sure, throws a wrench in that, and we kind of boggles our minds to think that there won't be marriage or giving in marriage in heaven that will be fulfilled and consummated in the marriage of, of Christ and his church. That relationship won't exist. But, you know, I thought, I will know who Jessica is, and she will know who I am. And you'll know who your past husband or wife, spouse, brother, sister, child is, and they will know who you are. Because when we think of heaven, we're not thinking about being separated entirely from this current existence and this current earth. We're talking about a redeemed creation, a redeemed earth, and a resurrected life. On page 137 in the book, you see this quote by Anthony Hokema. It's off to one of the, the sides there. Hokema says, We need a clear understanding of the doctrine of the new earth. Therefore, in order to see God's redemptive program in cosmic dimensions, we need to realize that God will not be satisfied until the entire universe has been purged of all the results of man's fall. So as we continue to think about the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, as we discussed last week, we don't need to think of something that is completely existentially different than what we experience right now in our relationships with each other, in the beauty of creation all around us, in the goodness of food and art and music and literature, all those things designed by God to point us to what a redeemed creation and a new earth will be. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So we think about the far reach of the resurrection. Let's think about what God's people have always been looking for. And here's the interesting thing. They're always looking for it, whether they realize it or not. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. Hebrews, chapter 11. You know Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter and it goes through all the heroes of the Old Testament, many of them, and by faith they did this, and by faith they did that, because without faith it is impossible to please God, the author tells us. In Hebrews 11, though, verse 13, we see what the object of their faith was. All these heroes of the faith died in faith. Not having, verse 13, sorry, Hebrews eleven thirteen, not having received the things promised. That is, Abraham was promised something. Isaac was promised something. Jacob was promised something. Moses, David, Noah, all the heroes of the Old Testament looking forward to a promise that when they died had not yet been realized. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
God promised Abram, right? In the very first covenant there in the Bible that we read of God stepping down and making this covenant with mankind. What does he tell to Abram? I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land and you'll be a blessing to all peoples. The author of Hebrews here is saying that no matter where Abraham wound up, And no matter where the people of Israel wound up as we're about to begin Exodus on Sunday and the journey to the promised land, that even as they came into Canaan and even as they came into the promised land and even as they later built the city of Jerusalem and the temple, we understand looking back now that that was never the end, that they were looking to another country. Verse 16 here in Hebrews 11 says, as it is, they desire a better country, that is... A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Even as they obeyed God and took the promised land and built Jerusalem and built the temple and then came back later and rebuilt the walls under Ezra and Nehemiah and we had the glory of the second temple by the time Jesus came, even that was just a shadow and a type of the promised land that is coming in the resurrection and the new earth. The author of Hebrews tells us this. No matter where they would have went on the earth, no matter what they would have constructed and built here on earth, it was just a picture of the fuller thing that was coming. Throughout the entire Old Covenant, there was promised a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who was coming to reign. And one of the promises we see about this king, we read this back in Isaiah 66, was that he was not just going to take, I don't know the word that was, he wasn't just going to take us to heaven. But when Messiah comes, he is going to bring heaven to earth. And so when you read the Old Testament, it can sometimes be confusing because as you're reading, and you might be reading in the Psalms or something else, and we have this sort of underdeveloped doctrine of heaven the way we know it because Jesus hasn't come. There's a lot that hasn't been revealed yet as we read through the Old Testament. And we might read that and be tempted to think that they don't believe the same thing about heaven as we do. We might be tempted to think, well, when they die, do they believe they're going to go to heaven? Let's just say it this way. The Hebrew and the Old Testament preoccupation was not with the afterlife. We have further revelation in Scripture that says there is an afterlife between death and the resurrection. The intermediate state, remember, the present heaven. We have scriptural confirmation that says there is a heaven, there is a hell. We experience that when we die. But the Old Testament preoccupation is not with that intermediate state. The Old Testament preoccupation, whether it's the prophets or the the poetry or the wisdom literature, as they think about the unfolding of God's kingdom, is not that intermediate state in between, the connecting flight, remember? It's the destination. And so when we read those promises of the prophets or Moses or the psalmist or whoever it is, promising this future kingdom, that's literally what they imagined. And what the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write, that when Messiah comes, it's not about him whisking you away somewhere. It's about him bringing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to earth. So when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading a stunted picture of heaven. We're reading about the future heaven. And so we're often tempted just to think only about the present heaven. Or what happens when we die, rather than what the Old Testament was pointing us to, which is the kingdom coming to earth. 
It's interesting when we begin to read the New Testament, you don't have to turn here, but it's referenced there in your handout, Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel promises Mary that she's going to have a child and it's going to be, call him Jesus, and there's that interchange between Mary and the, and the angel about how can this be since I'm a virgin, and the angel says everything's possible with God. Remember Luke chapter 1, verse 32 through 33, that promise that the angel Gabriel made to Mary. Going back to Isaiah 9, Gabriel promises that on this child, on this son that you will bear, is exactly what Isaiah said, the kingdom and the government will rest upon his shoulders. This is the king who is bringing the kingdom of righteousness and justice. When Isaiah said, when he saw and he heard the Lord say that when Messiah comes, he will reign in righteousness and justice forevermore. When Gabriel announces that to Mary, the angel is telling Mary, this is the one of whom that was about. This is the one of whom that was written. This is the king and his is the kingdom of righteousness and justice. So all those Old Testament pictures longing for that kingdom and longing for that king and longing for that recreation, recreation of heaven and earth, all of that summed up in the person and the work of Jesus. In his first coming, we saw the inauguration of that kingdom through his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, we see what theologians have called the inauguration of that kingdom. It has begun. We're not waiting on the kingdom of God to exist. We're waiting on it to come in fullness to earth. But it exists right now because Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God the Father right now. He's sitting on the throne right now. He has sent the Holy Spirit to his church right now. We are ruling and reigning with him over Satan and death and sin right now. But one day that's going to come in its fullness. Because in the second coming, that which was inaugurated in the first coming will be, it's a good theological word for you, consummated. The consummation of that kingdom in the second coming. When we see him return as king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible presents us with some complicated language though about the earth. You say, Pastor Matt, I hear you. This all sounds great, new heaven, new earth. It is this earth. It's not so different than what we experience now in terms of creation and beauty and goodness. But the Bible does present us with some complicated language about the earth that might make us uh, take a moment to think. Look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 26. Verse 25 says... Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Now, we know what perish means. Perish means to die. It's going to go away. So all this talk about a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be this earth but redeemed. What do we do with this language that the heavens and the earth, as we know them, are going to pass away? They're going to die. Look at Luke, um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. All these scripture references are in your, um, either on your handout or in the study guide. I think they're in both. Uh, 
So if you want to go back and study these later, that's good too. Luke chapter 21, verse 33. We know this. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now there's Jesus saying the same thing. Heaven and earth will pass away. There'll be no more. They'll die. They'll perish. Look over in the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Peter 3, 10. Speaking of the second coming, the day of the Lord, Peter says, 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Literal translation could also be will be burned up. Lastly, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, verse 1, John uses this language, Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, we're talking about that. We've been saying it's kind of, it's the same earth. But then he says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You, you don't have to turn back there, but if you were to turn back in the Psalms and we were to look at Psalm 102, we read verses 25 and 26 that um, the heavens and the earth will pass away. If we were to go on and read the rest of verse 26, though, I think we'll hear what the psalmist intends and what we should think of when we see all these other instances. The the psalmist says, Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26, the heavens and the earth will pass away, no more. But the second part of verse 26 is so important because it clarifies what he means by pass away. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. When we think about the heavens and the earth as we know them passing away, we should not think of them being destroyed, annihilated, brought to nothing. But when we think about the heavens and the earth passing away, when we think about a new earth, we should think about how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Does anybody know that by heart? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Now, how many of you, when you were saved, were completely annihilated right there on the spot and came up from the ground like a phoenix says just this this whole new thing? No, of course that didn't happen. So what kind of new is Paul talking about? What does it mean that the old is gone, the new has come, I was an old man and now I have the new man, I'm a new creation? You've been changed. Your essence and your identity have been fundamentally changed from a child of Adam under the curse of sin and death in the fall to a child of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed, changed, born again. You're not who you were, even though you are existentially the same person. We should think about the new heavens and the new earth in that way. 
that what we see will be heaven. What we see will be earth, but it will be completely transformed just as you were when you became a child of God. That redemption and that renewal that you know as a child of God that you will know in full on the day of resurrection is exactly how we should picture the new earth. That when Jesus comes, even as we are redeemed by the sight of him in glory, all creation that is presently longing and groaning for that day will also be redeemed and changed into something new. In the book, uh, page 152, the book book, not the study guide, page 152, another quote by Hokema, good go-to, second paragraph up from the bottom on page 152 in the book. Anthony Hokema says, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, so the universe as we know it, if that's what God's plan was, to annihilate it, no more, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos that the present earth that God uh, could do nothing with but to blot it out of, uh, totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish it from all the results, from it, the results of Satan's evil machinations. I like that word, machinations, his works, his devices. You know what he said? If the, if the truth of the heaven that's coming is that God was going to completely destroy everything, wad it up, throw it away, and do something completely new, old was burnt up and annihilated and gone, and this is something completely unfamiliar. Then the author says, and I think rightly so, quoting Hokema, that Satan would have won. That his corruption of creation was so devastating and so final that God could do nothing to redeem it. He had to throw it away. But the whole purpose in redemption is to, remember the re, 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 to redeem and resurrect what was created originally as good. In the book, and I think in your study guide too, in fact, it, it might just be in the study guide. Do you see that chart that says uh, what we assume of heaven and what, what the real heaven will be like? Is that in your study guide? Or is that just in the handout? In the book, it's on page 161. And, uh, but on the handout, I've created a do-it-yourself version that, that we'll go through right now. When we think of heaven, on that column that says what we assume, if you're looking in the book, it's there if you want to write it in your handout. Here's what we often assume about heaven. Write this there in those columns. That it is non-earth non-earth. We might think of it as unfamiliar, otherworldly, is that word we used, disembodied. We might think of it as foreign, leaving favorite things behind. 
we might be tempted to think that in heaven there is no time or space. Maybe you think of heaven as static. That it's neither old like Eden, but it's also not new. It's just strange and unknown. Maybe we think that in heaven there's nothing to do. Floating on the clouds, you know, playing the harp and singing songs we don't know. Or songs we do know, just forever and ever and ever and ever. No learning or discovery. There's one we often think about heaven, right? There's nothing more to learn, nothing more to discover. Instant and complete knowledge. And we think, well, that sounds great, but then what do you do after that? Maybe it's boring. We think of it as boring. We think of heaven, listen, this is an important one. We think of heaven as the loss of desire. That when we get to heaven, we'll no longer desire things because we think of desire as either sinful or selfish or jealous or something like that. Heaven might be, in that assumption category, we might think of it as the absence of bad things. But maybe not the presence of every good thing. Now contrast that to this next column, what the Bible says about heaven. That instead of a non-earth, it is a new earth. Instead of being unfamiliar and otherworldly, it's very familiar and earthly. It's not disembodied, it's resurrected. It's not foreign, the Bible says it's home. It's not leaving favorite things behind, it's retaining, that's important, it's retaining the good, yet still finding the best ahead. Instead of no time and space, there is actually time and space. Rather than static, it's dynamic. Instead of not old, not new, just weird, the Bible says, no, it's both old and new. Instead of seeing nothing to do but floating on the clouds, think of this, a God to worship and serve. A universe to rule. Purposeful work. You realize that the fall did not bring work. The fall brought uselessness in work. And when God said, you're going to have to work the ground to Adam, that wasn't just the curse in and of itself, but what? From the sweat of your brow. And it will bring forth thorns and thistles. But work in and of itself was not part of the fall. So think about heaven as purposeful work to accomplish, friends to enjoy. Far from being nothing to learn, nothing to discover, you instantly know everything. No, heaven will be an eternity of learning and discovering. So far from boring, it will be fascinating. And instead of the loss of desire, it will be the continuous fulfillment of desire. And it won't just be the absence of bad things. It will be the presence of every wonderful thing.
When we think about this resurrection and this new earth and what God came to do in redemption, we should immediately think of the incarnation. Because when we think about the incarnation, when God the Son took on a human body and a human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, you had the eternal spiritual being of God embodied in flesh and bones, walking this earth. Now, one of the ancient Christian heresies, one of the very first heresies that the church had to deal with was a heresy called Gnosticism. And there were all kinds of denominations, if you will, of Gnosticism, but the same basic truth was at the core of what the Gnostics thought. The same basic truth, or the same basic error that they thought was that the flesh and everything physical is evil and bad, but it is the invisible spiritual stuff that is good. And so for the Gnostics, though they might have considered themselves Christians, they did not believe that Jesus became a man. Or they believed that he only appeared to be a man. But God would never take on our, our, our flesh and our bones because it's dirty and filthy and corrupted. He would never walk this earth because it's physical and evil and corrupted by sin. God would never do that. And so for the Gnostics, heaven wasn't about some redeemed physical existence. It was just sort of this disembodied spiritual existence out there in the middle of nowhere. And you could actually experience that now by thinking hard enough and knowing enough, the Gnostics said. But if you read the book of 1 John, he really goes at this early Gnostic thought in the book of Colossians. That far from being just completely evil and wicked and no good, creation is good. It is tainted by sin. But Jesus came and took on human flesh and lived on our earth. The author says this on page 165 of the book. Listen, uh, two paragraphs down, it says, Scripture portrays God. Scripture portrays God as holy and transcendent. Check. So because heaven is his dwelling place, it seems appropriate to think, or inappropriate, to think of heaven in earthly terms. Isn't that how we often think? God is transcendent. He's not of this earth. He's not of this creation. So thinking about heaven in earthly terms seems inappropriate. But even before Christ's incarnation, God came to the garden to walk with Adam and Eve. And Christ's incarnation and resurrection took it much further. One member of the transcendent triune God became permanently imminent. Jesus in his physical form and in his human resurrection body for all eternity takes on that for us. He may choose to exercise his divine omnipresence in a way we can't comprehend or he may experience it within the Godhead through the Father and the Spirit But there is no indication that Jesus, the risen Savior, will cease to be the eternal God-man. Listen to this last part. His marriage to us is not an unequal yoke of spiritual God to physical people. Not only are we also spiritual, but Jesus, by incarnation and resurrection, is also physical. We understand that? That in his becoming man, 
God weds himself in the person of Jesus to humanity, in our flesh and our blood and this earth. And as the God-man, and in his redemption as the God-man, he is redeeming mankind, but he's also redeeming all of creation. So as we think about the earth and as we think about creation, we should not think bad. We should not think evil. We should think very good and that God is going to redeem it one day. When we think spiritual and physical, we shouldn't think of oil and vinegar that just don't go together. But we should see those two, physical and spiritual, married not just in who we are as human beings, physical and spiritual, but in the person and work of Christ. And here's, here's the, the big thing, that it will be fully realized only, 1 John 3, 2, it will be fully realized only when we see him. Because it will be only when we see him that we will then be like him. Because we will see him as he is. So that brings us to our next question tonight. What will it mean to see God? Well, think about this question there in your study guide, page 47. It's also in your handout. What or who is it that we really long for? Psalm 63 verse 1 puts some beautiful words to this thought. Psalm 63, if I can get out of the 70s, from verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you belong to God and you're redeemed through Christ... You echo the sentiments in this verse. That what and who we are truly seeking after and truly long for is none other than God himself. The author says, I think it's in the study guide, our longing for heaven is a longing for God. And when we think about all the pleasures in this life, the goodness of food, music, literature, art, truth, all the stuff we talked about earlier, all the good things, no matter what they are or where they are, are the good things that we can experience in this life are not separated from who God is, but they are derived from who God is. So, as Ecclesiastes tells us, having good food and having good drink And having your family and having a good job, all of those, Ecclesiastes says, are a good gift from God. And when you see creation, whichever one part of creation, you know, just tickles your fancy, whether it's mountains or trees or or the oceans or a lake or fishing or hunting or wherever you are in whatever situation you find yourself in, in which you think, wow, this is fantastic. This is beautiful listening to a piece of music or a symphony or beholding a wonderful piece of art, and you think, man, that is good. All those pleasures, all that goodness have very much something to do with who God is and what heaven is. 
Because when you have that taste of goodness and truth and beauty in whatever form it comes to us, we are experiencing God's goodness, God's truth, and we're experiencing a little taste of what heaven is about. The next question, what can we learn from Scripture, though, about the experience of seeing God? Um, We don't have time to go through all those Scriptures that are enumerated there. Uh, Let's simply say it this way. The Scriptures are clear that no one has ever seen God. He tells Moses that, Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. You can go and look that up later. Because physical eyes cannot behold that which is purely spiritual. God does not have a body, flesh and bones. He's not made up of matter or parts like we are. And so there's nothing, there's nothing to see. And so no one has ever seen God in his essence, in his godness, his fullness. When they, however, get a glimpse of something of God, whether Moses who saw the backside of God's glory, whether it's Isaiah who had that vision of the Lord seated on the throne in the temple, or whether it's John in the book of Revelation who saw the glorified Christ and saw the throne of God and the throne room of heaven, what do they all do as they, as they behold the glory or some manifestation of God? Well, they're all terrified They all typically fall down on their face and realize their unworthiness and their sinfulness before God. So that creates a dilemma for us. If that's what it is to see God, to say as Isaiah did, woe is me, I'm cursed, I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. Who wants to see God? Who wants to see God if that's what it means? But think about Job. In Job 19... We, I cited this last week for you. Job says, though my heart and flesh may fail, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What did Job go through that affected his view of what it meant to see God? Think of Job's suffering and Job's trials and Job's heartache. And think of how all those things influenced what he thought about what it was to see God. Now somewhere in this is the truth. Can we see God or can't we see God? Can we behold God and live or do we all just get obliterated? Why was Job hoping to, hoping to see God? Why was that his hope if all it meant for these other people was fear and death? Uh, two things here. Our suffering, like Job, causes us rightly to long to see God. And it points us to the joy of what it will be like to see God. But we still have this wall, don't we? That these holy men saw some part of God and thought that they were going to die. How can we hope to see God and live? I turn quickly here to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's think about this just for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, watch what these false teachers do under the banner of godliness. They forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul then says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself toward that goal. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every age, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Now, we don't have time to put all this together, but I want you to see what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, here is what the false teachers say godliness is about. This is what these false teachers say, Timothy. If you really want to be godly, if you really want to know what it is to see God, Timothy, here's what you're going to do. Abstain from these foods. Don't get married. Uh, practice some sort of life of asceticism and, and just deprive yourself of all good things. That's what it means to know God. That's what it will mean to see God, Timothy. And Paul says, no, reject that. Because God created all good things to be received with thanksgiving, not because they take away from who God is, but because all those good things point to who God is. And if we think for a moment about what it will mean to see God with redeemed eyes, with glorified bodies in the resurrection, it will be the presence and the eternal fullness of every good thing. Paul says, yeah, it it is of some value to train your body. So you might watch what you eat. You might exercise. You might do these things. Paul says that's a good idea for this body. But think about training for godliness. Training for godliness, giving thanks to God, receiving the good things from God, and returning thanks and praise to him in our life and in our service. Paul says "That's that's of good value, not just right now, but for the life that is to come. Because in the life that is to come... It will be eternally joy in the presence of God. In the book, uh, page 178, you see this quote. Page 178 at the bottom, God doesn't want. God doesn't want to be replaced or depreciated. He wants to be recognized as the source of all our joys. And he wants us to draw closer to him through partaking of his creation. My taking pleasure in a good meal or a good book is taking pleasure in God. It is not a substitute for God, nor is it a distraction from him. How often do we think about the pleasures in this world or the goodness of the world, earthly things, food, art, creation, whatever it is? How often do we think of those things as, well, they're not really that important. Those just distract us from who God is. We shouldn't indulge in those kind of things. We shouldn't really find pleasure in food or drink or work or our marriage or our children or relationships or friendships. We kind of just treat those and put them on the back burner because those aren't really what it's all about. God is really what it's all about. We can be super spiritual that way, can't we? But do you hear those? 
those echoes of the false teaching that Timothy dealt with? And do we hear Paul's words rightly when he says, no, take the good things, enjoy the good things, and let them point you to God. And let them point you to what heaven will be like and what it will mean to see God. The Bible, that next question, what it will be like for us to live or for God to live with us, no scripture references there. When the Bible mentions God living with us, either in the tabernacle or the temple or in the fullness of, of Jesus, it's not just that he comes and puts a house down in the middle of us and isn't that great and God's our neighbor. No, it's that his presence and his fullness and his joy and his peace and his goodness is with us and is in us forever. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that we should keep our eyes on Christ, not on the things of earth, but where Christ is, where our life is. Even right now, your life is not here where you are. It is already hidden with Christ and God. But what does Paul say next? But when Christ appears, as he comes here, Paul says, then Christ who is your life, will appear and you will be with him because your life is already in him. Your life is already there in him, but it's not just that we're going there to him, it's that he's coming here to us and when he comes, he will bring true endless life with him. The next shocking truth we learn here about what it will be like to be in heaven and to see God and you can see those scripture references, Isaiah 25, Matthew 20, Luke 12, John 13. One of the most shocking truths about heaven is that in heaven, God will serve us. This is in your study guide, page 52, question 9. In heaven, God will serve us. How is that different than how we often think of heaven? We think of heaven as, well, we're going to serve him. And that's true. We're going to worship him. And we're going to be there sort of as kind of endless eternal slaves for him. But in all these passages, Isaiah says God is going to spread out this feast for us. And he's going to be the one to serve us. God will serve. Not as a subservient slave. Listen. But by giving us everything we ever desired in himself. By fulfilling every single one of our desires in himself. Fulfillment, joy, peace, happiness. They will be served to us by God. By the giving of his presence. Eastern religion, Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, they, they picture salvation as sort of a ceasing from wanting. So according to Buddha... The reason that there are problems in this life and the reason there are such things as sin and suffering is because we want too much. And so that's why Buddhists and Buddhist monks will practice a lifelong fasting and lifelong deprivation of themselves from things. Why? Because if they can just learn not to want so much, they'll find happiness. And so for Buddhism and Hinduism and other Eastern religions, heaven is not about going somewhere or something coming here. It's about sort of just ceasing to exist. And becoming one with the universe. Contrast that to the biblical picture of heaven. 
which tells us, yes, you can have sinful desires, and yes, you can have jealous desires and wicked desires, but there's also good desires, ones that God put there on purpose to point you to Him. Desires that will not just disappear into nirvana, but will be met completely and fully in the pleasures of God forevermore. Lastly, and very quickly, endless worship. What does that mean? What does it mean that we will worship God forever? Are we really talking about an endless church service? So at the end of a worship service, when I say, man, this is a taste of heaven, and you didn't like the songs, and the preaching was too long or too short, because that's always good, right, when it's too short. When that happens and you think, that's a taste of heaven? I don't, that doesn't sound very interesting to me. What do we do when we think of heaven as endless worship? And the second question goes along with that. How do we get glimpses of that here? Well, take corporate worship out of the equation and our corporate gathering, opening the, the Bible and reading together and singing the songs and all that stuff we do that's important and vital for our walk with Jesus. That's, that's crucial. Take that out of the picture and imagine that sense of worship that if you're a believer should overflow in your mind and your imagination when you behold the ocean or when you behold a grand mountain or the Grand Canyon or when you hear a beautiful piece of music or a piece of art or read a wonderful piece of literature. Think about that feeling and that emotion that overflows the, the knowledge of truth and goodness and beauty and whatever it is or you take a really good bite out of a big juicy prime rib and you think, man, that's fantastic. These are little tastes of worship. And if we'll do what Paul says and turn them around in thanksgiving to God, not just enjoying them for the sake of enjoying them, but returning praise and thanks to God, then that's a good thing that God made for you to enjoy because it points you to him. And so when you think of heaven as endless worship, don't think of an endless worship service but think of it as a never-ending back and forth between what you desire and that being perfectly fulfilled in who God is in Christ. When you think of the good things in creation, like your job, hobbies, relationships, music, art, food, if we will turn those joys into worship and adoration of God, there we will have a taste of heaven. J.I. Packer said, it's at the end of your handout there. Hearts on earth may say in the course of full joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But it invariably does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There is no better news than this. I want you to go home and contemplate something. I'm going to leave you with this quote from the book on page 171. The Bible is clear that no one has ever seen God. We've seen God incarnated in the person of Jesus. We've seen God take on different forms and do different things, burning bushes and angels and other appearances like that. But no one has ever seen the true divine nature and essence of God. But we have the promise in Scripture that one day, whatever it means to see that, we have the promise that we will see that. And so I close with this quote from the top of page 170, 
1, a quote by John Donne, poet. He says, I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as that sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God himself, who had no morning, who never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Go home and think about that. Sit on that for a while, what it means to see God. And that no man has ever seen God and lived, but we shall not live until we see him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for what it means to have this promise that one day in our glorified, resurrected, redeemed bodies on a glorified, resurrected, redeemed earth, you will live with us and we will see you. And God will behold the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever and be lost in worship and love and praise. God, forgive us when we demean heaven, when we demean the resurrection by making it into little things that it's not. And help us to begin to think more biblically about what it means to be redeemed, what it will mean to be resurrected, and what it will mean to see you and to live with you, and you to live with us for eternity. God, in every bite of food and every drink that we drink and every good book that we read and every wonderful piece of music that we hear and the kindness and friendship of other people and the love of our families and our children, our spouses, help us to see you and help, help those moments further our longing for that moment when we see you and we experience that joy and pleasure to which all those others' lesser joys only pointed. God, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for Jesus who gave himself for us so that we might live with you forever. We ask and praise all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.